Good morning, Crossroads. Can we put our hands together to and for our Lexington campus and our Shelby campus? The very first day for our Lexington campus, we're so thankful to have you. And for those watching online, you're catching up with us, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited for our Lexington campus. We praise God for what he's doing in our Shelby campus, and we so appreciate what God is doing throughout the body of our church. If you would take your Bibles out with me here this morning and turn to Philemon chapter one. There's only one chapter in Philemon, so if you find the book of Hebrews, turn back one book, this small little letter from Paul called Philemon chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you, right under the chair in front of you. You could turn with us to page 1000. That's Philemon chapter one. And across all campuses here at Park Avenue, Shelby and Lexington, if you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. You want to make sure that every person has a copy of God's word, what we call the Bible. It is not only the roadmap of life, it is the revelation of God. We can know God through his Word. As you turn there, last week across uh, all the campuses here at Crossroads, we had a special missions gift. We, we asked you to be a part of God's work around the world. I want to update you very quickly. Uh, as of last week, we were able to get in hand $36,000 towards transportation needs around the world. So well done. Thank you. If you have not been a part of that, maybe you weren't here, maybe you're brand new at Lexington, and you'd like to be a part of helping missions around the world, all of that money is going to go right to missions. You can stop by the Info Center or Next Steps and give that gift. You can also go online to our app. Make sure you designate it as, as special missions gift and give that toward the cause of our global partners around the world and right here through the city center. So we're excited about what God is doing. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the impact that you're having. We're to keep you updated as to how that is going forward in our community and around the world. Coloss uh, Phile Philemon chapter one, uh, we're gonna be looking here at this small book. Let's be honest, we live in a culture that loves taking pictures. We do, we love taking pictures. Now it used to be, that we would take pictures to remember memories. But now because of Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, we actually take pictures to make memories. We don't take pictures to remember things, we take pictures to create things. And so I don't know about you, but my wife, my family, we, we love having pictures. My wife loves to take pictures. Wherever we go, she always has a camera ready. Even back when we were first married, before there were cell phones, these cameras that we hang around with right, on our, right in our pockets, she would actually carry a camera with her almost everywhere she went because there might be a moment that she wanted to capture. And so we have, we have these binders of pictures in our living room that you could look at, and it goes back all the way to when we first started dating. And you can look at these pictures, you can look at the kids as they grow up, and these pictures reveal these memories that we wanna have, that we wanna remember. And there are places that are special to us, places that were funny for us, places that were unique. And I can tell you, every time we ended vacation, every time we end vacation, even up until now, my wife always has one moment where we go out as a family and we get a picture together. And you know the secret of the picture is it's gotta be the right one. Anybody here ever taken a selfie before? Uh, probably most of us have attempted at least to take a selfie. Isn't it true that the first thing you do after taking a selfie or the first thing you do after taking a picture is check to make sure that you look good? It's true. We, we wanna present the best version of ourselves. And so when we take a picture, now with cameras that are on our phones, we wanna make sure that we look good. We wanna present ourselves in the best way possible. 
And so it never fails when we're out taking a picture for a family photo shoot at the end of vacation. Us guys, we dread it. Because we've learned this little game with my wife. Is if we take too long to take the picture, if we don't cooperate, then picture time takes longer. But if we cooperate, my wife will dream up different poses and positions we need to be in. Anybody else been there? You know what I'm talking about? So either way, we as the guys, and I have four sons and myself, us five guys, we don't win in this. If we don't cooperate with mom during these pictures, this takes a lot longer. But if we do cooperate with mom, then all of a sudden it's longer because she's dreaming up different ways we can take better pictures because they're just going so well. The point is this. Whenever we take a picture, we want to present the best view of ourselves. Think about the selfie world. We live in the selfie era now. When you take a selfie, you want to make sure the angle of your camera is just right. You want to make sure that the lighting is right, and you might even look at the camera and make little duck lips. Now, don't ask me how I know the word duck lips, but it's true. Look, look at selfies today, and that's what it looks like, right? The, the angle's right, the lighting right, and then there's this pose that's absolutely perfect. And the reason is because it's intrinsic in us to try to present the best picture of ourselves. We don't keep and capture pictures that don't look good, do we? You don't have hanging on your wall pictures where children's eyes are closed, where hair's in front of faces, where a bug flies across the screen. You don't do that. No, we present the best pictures that we can have of ourselves. I want to give you one example. This is a picture from 22 years ago on our wedding day. And uh, this is a picture of my wife being lifted up on a chair by my groomsmen, a couple of my cousins and a couple of friends and a nephew, and they lifted Alice up. I want, to take, I want you to take a look at my wife's face. There were actually multiple shots taken of this picture. This is the only one that we have. We do have a slight video of this. It's in VHS form. I couldn't figure out how to translate that today. So uh, we have a little bit of this on a video clip, but the picture we have is only of this. But I want you to look at her face. She does not look happy, does she? There's a bit of hesitancy on her face. Here's the reason why. What you're not seeing about this picture is that there was a picture taken right before this where these groomsmen actually dropped my new wife. They were holding her on the chair and the chair flipped back and she fell off. So here she is in the new picture, the only picture now put together, but if you look into her eyes, she's a bit hesitant. She doesn't know whether these guys are gonna hold her up or not. This is proof that we only want to present the best picture possible. But the truth of it is, every picture is not perfect. You ever have a family portrait? How hard is it to get the right family? If you have babies, if you have kids, how hard is it to get the right picture? How hard is it to get the family all together? How hard is it to really portray the best possible version? Now I want you to think about that. We translate this to our spiritual lives. And the scripture reveals to us that Christ comes and he, he comes to earth, he lives perfectly, he dies uh, for our sins, he raises again, rises again victoriously, he ascends into heaven, but before he does, he commissions a group of people to be his hands and feet. In fact, in the New Testament, they are called the body of Christ. It's the church, that you and I are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the visible representation of the invisible Christ that has ascended. We become the picture of Christ. What is true of Jesus should be true of us. And if you look around the church world of today, it would be very easy for us to think and to say, we're not really painting a very good picture, are we? 
This picture isn't clean. This picture has some eyes closed and people wandering and there's, there's things flying through the air and this picture isn't always all together. And yet this is exactly what God calls the church to be, the body of Christ, the representation of who he is to a world that desperately needs him. Now, this idea of being the picture of Christ has not gotten easier. It has not gotten easier. In our history, specifically as a country, it used to be that, that the church and culture were tightly wound together. That the church and culture had a connection that we were called in a, a Christian culture. And so the church and the culture kind of influenced each other and had, had, had a kind of on the same path, on the same journey together. But today, we find a growing gap between the church and the culture. There is a growing gap that is taking place between the body of Christ and the culture around us. This is only widening every year, widening every moment, widening every season. We see this happening today throughout the media, this widening of culture in Christianity. And so the question is, how can the church really give a representation of Christ when it seems like the gap between church and culture is actually growing wider? By the way, if you are here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not part of the body of Christ, this also is true and the vice versa. This is also true the other way. You can begin to look at the church and say, it seems to be leaving what I think it should be doing. It seems to be farther away than what I would expect. You can look at this same portrayal in your life, in your angle. So the question is, what do we do? How do we fill this gap? And can I tell you, how we fill this gap really determines how Jesus is reflected. How churches, how Christians fill this gap will give indication as to how Jesus is reflected. Let me give you a, a few options. There are kind of three options that we can do in filling this gap. There are some churches that try to fill the gap between the church and culture by being against the culture. There are churches that are against the culture. And what happens is they look at the church and culture as opposing forces that are at odds with each other. The culture is across one line, the church is across another line, and these opposing forces are at battle with each other. Many people begin to view the church as somewhat of a bomb shelter. It's a place that we run for safety. It's a place that we run to hide from the spiritual onslaught of the culture around us. And so there are many people that view the church as a bomb shelter. Some view the church as a weapon. The church is a means by which we go out and do battle against the culture. Here's the problem. While this has great integrity and good intentions, we want to preserve the church's purity and we want to recognize the church is under attack. The problem is this. The problem is we eventually make man-made barriers that lead to legalism. When we see culture and church against each other, when we do battle or when we hide, what happens is we make these man-made barriers. And what ends up happening is we create the illusion that we're safe from sin. But can I tell you what happens? Sin happens on the inside anyway. This happens in legalism all the time. right? It, it, it becomes an us versus them. Well, they're evil and we're good. They're unrighteous and we're righteous. Well, what happens when we start to say that? Well, we become prideful and slowly we fall into hidden sins. This happens all the time. You see it around the culture, around, around the church world. You see this happening where legal, legalism gives way to hidden sin. It ends up really pervading or actually prevailing sin. It brings sin into the body of Christ because we hide. We, we wear masks. Can I tell you, honestly, this is a, a danger, especially for those who have been Christians for very long. The longer you're a Christian, I could dare say that this might be the direction you take. The longer you're a Christian, you can begin to think we are a church against the culture. 
But can I tell you, it's not working. Statistics will show that this is actually not working in the culture. A couple of sets. 87% of Americans say the church is too judgmental. 85% say the church is too hypocritical. Now, whether it's true or not, of all times, in all places, in every opinion, what happens is we don't reach the culture, we don't change the culture, we don't help the culture, we don't serve the culture. No, instead, we actually look judgmental and hypocritical. Why? Because all of us still have these issues. All of us still walk in civil tendencies. And so one of the ways that people respond is to say the church is against the culture. The second way is we can say the church is of the culture. All of a sudden, there are many churches, many Christians that say, well, well, if I'm not against the culture, then I want to be a church of the culture. I want to begin to mirror the culture. I want to look like the culture. I want to reflect the culture. And the intentions are to be able to reach the culture. And so the intentions, again, are good. The problem is... We end up making man-made idols. We end up slowly embracing the gray areas of the culture, and when we embrace the gray areas of the culture, we eventually make the message we proclaim a gray message, a message that isn't clear, a message that doesn't actually change lives, a gospel that is watered down. There are many churches that fall into this category. They're not against the culture. They're churches and Christians of the culture. They've embraced the culture, and what happens is they slowly become a gray area. They stand for nothing. And can I tell you, statistically, this is not working either. The reason we know that is because uh, recent polls have shown that over 50% of Americans say, I don't need the church because I can find God elsewhere. Over 45% said the church is not relevant to me personally. I don't need the church. They're not teaching me anything. They're just like I am. They don't bring anything to life. They don't bring anything to my spiritual journey. They don't don't describe anything that I need in life. And so there is a, a culture that says, well, why would I want to be a part of a church that's of the culture? I can just live in the culture. I don't need to be of the culture. And so what's the answer? The answer is if we want to paint the picture of Christ as the body of Christ, if we want to paint a picture that demonstrates Christ, if we want to be a church here in, in Mansfield, in Lexington, in Shelby, and around the world, if we want to be that church, what do we do? Well, here's what I think is the answer. We want to be a church in the culture, but for Christ. We want to be a church in the culture, but for Christ. We are called to stir the culture, to shift the culture, to stimulate the culture toward Jesus Christ. Now here's why I say that. Because the culture itself is structurally not bad. What do I mean? Well, God made the culture. The culture in and of itself, the culture of our workplaces, the culture of family, the culture of government, the culture, right? God gives us these things. These things in and of themselves are not wrong. What happened in sin is that they are directionally wrong. They're structurally good. They're directionally wrong. So as a church, our greatest thing, our greatest force is to be a church in the culture. We live in the culture. We're at our workplaces. We're with our friends. We're in the sports teams. We're a part of our neighborhoods. We're in the culture but we're in the culture for the cause of Christ. We're in the culture with a different purpose. We're in the culture to stir, stimulate, and move us directionally to what God intended in making the culture in the first place. So so here we are in our era in a hinge point in history. What we believe and the picture we paint of Christ matters more than ever before. So the question is, what picture are we painting? How are we painting a picture of Christ? When people look at the church, when people look at Crossroads, when people look at me, when people look at you, what is the picture that we are painting of Christ? I want to take a look here 
at a small yet powerful little letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Philemon. Uh, Philemon was not a pastor. Philemon was actually a, a, a church, probably a wealthy man, who hosted one of the house churches in his home. Uh, and in that day, in the first century, there were no church buildings. The church didn't gather in buildings because the Roman Empire didn't allow it. And so they would gather from house to house. And Philemon was one of the house owners, probably big enough to have maybe 100 or 200 people into his home. And so he was not a pastor, but he was certainly a leader who welcomed people into his home and helped grow the church. So Paul writes this letter to this man named Philemon. Now we're not going to look at the entire context of this letter. We're going to look at just a brief portion of it. But this letter is one of the smallest. It is the smallest of Paul's letters. It's tucked, tucked away like a little gem between the letter to Titus and the, the letter to the Hebrews. It's only 335 words. It's one page in our Bibles. It's the smallest, yet it's one of the most personal books that Paul writes. In fact, I would say that this letter is actually not where it needs to be in our Bibles. And the reason the Bible is assembled the way it is is based upon who wrote it and then size. So it's the smallest, so it's at the end of the Pauline epistles, the Pauline letters, but it really belongs as a postscript to the letter to the Colossians. The reason I say that is because Philemon was actually a house church leader in the city of Colossae. So literally, this letter would have been on the tail end of the book of Colossians, but because of the size and the way we have it laid out, it's not there. But that's where it really should be. So I want to go back and I want to paint the context of what he says to the church meeting in Philemon's home, to Philemon and the people. Go back to Colossians for a moment, and we're going to begin in chapter 1. We see Paul writing the letter to the church of Colossae, and he gives these words. He describes who Christ is to the church. It says in verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, that doesn't mean he was the first created. That means that he was the preeminent one over creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we see that Jesus is the creator. He is the creator of all things. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only is he creator, he's also sustainer. He sustains all things. Verse 17, he is before all things, in him all, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, he is the firstborn from the dead. Again, he's preeminent over the dead, that in everything he might be first place preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then it gets personal. He says, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what is this saying? Paul writes this letter, and he begins in chapter 1 of Colossians. He says this. He says, here's who Christ is. Christ is creator. He's sustainer. He is the head of the body of the church, and here's how the church is formed. He looks at people who are enemies. He looks at people that turn his back, their backs on him, and he reconciles them to himself. I love this word, reconciled. It's one of the theme words of the Bible. The word reconcile literally means he breaks down the wall of division. 
He breaks down the barrier between our relationship with God and ourselves. He breaks down the wall. You know what that means here this morning? What, what that means in our lives? Is whatever it is that is in the way of Christ, Christ broke it down to the cross. Whatever it is that gets in the way of our relationship with Christ, it is broken down in the resurrection. Our sin, our shame, our, our guilt, our, our, our iniquity, our ungodliness, our choices against him. By the way, this even goes to the excuses we make. Well, well wait, I'm not good enough. Broken down. I, 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 can't, I can't live for Christ. I, you don't know what I've done. Broken down. Whatever it is that is in the way of a relationship with Jesus Christ has been broken down by the cross. Whatever excuse we can make has been broken down. Now there is a, an available right relationship in Jesus Christ and him alone. He is willing to reconcile by his work, by his doing. He brings us in. And notice at the end of Colossians 1, verse 22, it says, in order to present us, he's taking us on a journey to be holy and blameless. He brings us in, he reconciles us to himself, and he says, here, I'm gonna take you on a journey, and eventually you're going to be holy and blameless. The church, Christians, together, we are reconciled with God, we are made now part of the body of Christ, a reflection of him, and now he is gonna make us holy and blameless one day. Whatever it is that you put in between a relationship with God, whatever it is holding you back, God has broken it down, God has reconciled And notice God initiates it. God is the one who does this. Jesus himself is the bulldozer of whatever it is that is a barrier of the relationship with him. Of course, our sin, our inability, I don't add up, any thought we have, he bulldozes that. And he brings us in to himself and to the body of Christ. Now here's the point. How does God show his glory on the earth? Well, according to this, God shows his glory by saving us. God shows his glory across the universe. God shows the glory of his son, Jesus, by making the church the showcase of his perfections. He, he demonstrates to the world that he chose us, that he destined us, that he came to us, that he taught us, that he suffered for us and died for us and rose for us and reigns for us. He, he now calls us and justifies us and cleanses us and keeps us and now delivers us to Christ's likeness and holiness. He demonstrates his holiness to the world, his glory to the world, through the church. But by showing the world that we now have a right relationship who weren't able to have a relationship. We who are enemies have been brought in. So God is showcasing his glory through the body of Christ, through the picture that we paint of who we are and what he's doing. But what I love about this letter is it doesn't stop there. God just, just doesn't disinfect us and then put us on the shelf till later. God rescues us, awakens us, and now he brings us into service for him. In fact, if you, you flip over a page in Colossians chapter 4, it ends. Paul gives some admonitions, some commands. And this is what it says. Listen to Paul as he ends this letter. He says in verse 5, chapter 4, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So here's the picture. Grand theology about God leads to great obedience for God. If I know what Christ has done for me in my life in breaking down the wall of separation, now it leads to great obedience for him as I, as I declare the picture of his goodness to people that need it. So he says... He says, walk wisely toward outsiders. Redeem the time for them. 
God just didn't disinfect us and put it on the shelf. He puts us into service. He says, think about the people outside of us. Think about the culture around us. So two things here that we see in chapter four. We ought, to, we ought to think strategically about those on the outside. We want to think strategically. That means that every relationship now takes a different form. Every relationship, every, every connection, every neighbor, every work, worker, every boss, right? Everything now looks differently. Why? Because I understand what Christ has done for me, and now I think differently about everybody around me. And then he says, not only to think strategically, he says, act urgently. He says, make the best use of the time. Redeem the time. That's the word there, literally to buy back the time. The time is passing. We don't have much time left. He says, act urgently. Act intentionally, but also act urgently to those outside. So, Christ rescues us and brings us into a right relationship with himself. And now he delivers us and says, you go paint the picture of who Christ is, the glory of Christ to the world, by thinking strategically about every relationship and, and acting urgently toward them. Redeem the time. Make sure your, your mouth, your, your, your words are seasoned with salt. Make sure they're gracious. Make sure you're thinking about the answers that you have toward the culture. So the question is, what does this look like? How do we paint that picture? And can I tell you, the, the postscript of the book of Colossians is Philemon, who gives us a picture as to how this is lived out in the church. I want to show you this. In Philemon, small little book here. Now, if you were to read the rest of this chapter, there's a context here, uh, but I think it's really interesting. We're just going to read a first few seven verses. What he says, how Paul commends Philemon and this church. And I want to see this because I think this gives us the answer into both the calling of Christ into our lives as the church, and the calling of Christ to go serve Him, to think think in, intentionally, to think accurately, but also to act act urgently. How do we do this? Well. Philemon is a picture of that. Take a look with me, Philemon, and we're just going to read verses 1 through 7 together. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister. Many believe this is, this is Philemon's wife. And Archippus, our fellow soldier. Many believe this is the older son of Philemon. And the church in your house, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayer. So why does Paul thank God for them? Why does he remember them? Because I, have, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So the question is, how do we reflect the picture of Christ to a culture running away from Christ? Christ calls us in as a body. He rescues us. He takes down the wall of enmity between us. And now he calls us to go and think strategically and to go and act urgently toward those outside. So how do we do that? Well, Philemon here gives us a picture. I want to make three observations that we believe, I believe is right here in the text of what Paul writes to Philemon. Notice what he says in verse 5. I remember you, remember you finally, amen, I remember the church, why? Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have to the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. And you and I, we would read over this, and very easily in the English, we know what he's saying, right? I, I commend you for your love and for your faith. But what's interesting in the Greek is this forms a very, very peculiar grammatic construction. In fact, Paul goes a little poetic here. Paul uses poetry. And he uses what is considered a chiasm. A chiasm is a, a phrase that's given, 
and then another phrase is given, and that phrase is then enhanced, and then it eventually goes back out to the original point. So it goes like this, A, B, B, A. I want to show you here in verse 5. It says, first of all, I, I, I remember your love. I remember your faith. But that faith is specific. It's toward the Lord Jesus, and your love is for all the saints. Notice this contrast, this, this picture, is that our faith, our literally faith in Christ, leads us to love, and more literal, our love for the saints. So this is the chiasm. He says, I see your love for the saints, and it's because you have faith in Christ. Here's point one. Love for the people of Christ provides visible evidence of faith in the unseen Christ. Love for the people of Christ provides evidence for a faith in the unseen Christ. How does the world see Christ? They see Christ as to how we interact as the body of Christ. They see Christ through our love. They see the unseen Christ as we live by faith that overflows us in love. So our faith in Christ leads to love for each other, a love for the people around us. Now, this word love is, is an interesting word. We, we have one word that describes love, don't we? So for example, we, we'll say, I love pizza, I love my dog, and I love my wife. And you and I know we better not love them the same. Doesn't work. We have one word. So we live in a culture that now says this is what love is. Love is whatever you want it to be. Love has no boundaries. It has no judgments. It has no conditions. Love is actually justifying your heart to do whatever you want. Love is however you feel. And any authority that goes against how you feel, you reject them. Love is whatever you want. Love is the greatest form of self-expression and self-realization. That's how we define love in our culture today. The problem is this is not love. Love doesn't work this way. By the way, I want you to think about this as a parent. Can you imagine looking at your three or four-year-old and saying, I love you. I want you to live in the fullest expression of yourself. Go outside and do whatever you want. Go play in the street. Can you imagine saying to your three or four-year-old, we don't do that in our culture. In fact, if you did that, you would be taken to jail for neglect. You would. So we have a culture that's redefined love to say it's whatever you want. It's self-realization and self-fulfillment. It's whatever you want it to be. But it doesn't work. Why? Because eventually it leads, it, it leads to falsehood. It leads to hypocrisy. It, it, it leads to harm. It actually leads to harm. When you self-love, you don't always love yourself. So the word here that Paul uses is the word agapao or agape. And it literally is self-sacrificial love or selfless love. It's selfless. It has to be selfless. By the way, isn't love by definition selfless? In fact, I would go one step further. I would say anything less than selfless love is less than love. Anything less than selfless love is less than love. Why? Because love has to be selfless. Because if I'm loving for myself, I'm not actually loving the person I'm trying to love, am I? Can you imagine a marriage? I love you because of what you give to me. Baby love, I love you because you make some great meals. I love you because I love looking at you and... And that might, might be a bad thing to say, right? But think about that. If I just love you because of what you give me, that's not love. Love by definition means I love you in spite of you. I love you regardless of you. I love you self-sacrificially. By the way, that's why it works in the church. That's what makes the church so unique. We love one another in spite of the messiness of the picture that we sometimes paint. 
We love each other in spite of the mess that we sometimes portray. That's why the church of all entities on the planet are willing to get our hands messy in the mess of the world. Why? Because we understand a self-sacrificial love that in spite of who people are, we can love them. We can love them with a Christ-like love, a self-sacrificial love. We're willing to touch where the mess is. Now, how do we do that? We do that because we have faith in Christ. Now, I love, don't miss the, the chiasm here. I look around the Christian world and I think, man, we're messy, aren't we? Listen, if you came and lived with me for a day, you'd be like, Dave is messy. I'm not talking about literally messy, I mean, spiritually messy. I'm not all together sometimes. Things aren't always good. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I mess it up. Sometimes the picture that I'm trying to paint doesn't come across the right way. You're probably the same way. And if we, if we spend enough time together, you would realize how messy we are. The, the whole point of saying I have faith in Christ is I trust the plan of Christ. So, so I know Colossians 1. Christ says, I'm going to take the church and I'm going to break down the wall of enmity. I'm going to bring them into a right relationship and I'm going to one day make them holy and blameless. So I'm trusting that this plan of the church is indeed Christ's plan. And so when I trust Christ, what happens? I now can love because I'm trusting the plan of Christ to use the church. I, I, it's messy. It's not always together, but the picture that Christ is using to paint I trust Christ by faith, and so love comes out. I, I don't love motivated by others' good. I love motivated by God's glory. So let me ask you do, you, do you only love people that give you something in return? Do you only love people who are like you? Or do you love people that are different from you that need to know the love of Christ? Do you tend to initiate love? Or are you waiting for love to bring you something? By the way, forgiveness is a prime example of that. Are you willing to forgive? That's the picture of love here. That love that gives visible evidence to our faith in the unseen Christ. It shows that we believe Christ's way is the best way. Notice Paul says next, verse 6. He says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, we read this, and at first glance, it would seem that he's saying a call to evangelism. It seems that he's saying that we need to share our faith. The word here, sharing, is actually the Greek word koinonia. And koinonia is the word for fellowship, or literally to share life together. It is a mutual partnership in the faith to now share life together as a, a description of all that God has done. Now notice it. It says, I pray that the sharing of your faith together may become effective. I love that. That word is the word energy, energase. The word energy may become effective energy for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So how do people know that God is good? How do they know that Christ is good? They know it when we share life together. They know it when we do life together. Here's the point. As the church shares life together, we display a clear picture of God's goodness. As we do life together, as we live life together, people become knowledgeable about how good God is. We together become knowledgeable about how good God is, but we also now display that to the world. How, do, how does the world know that God is good? Look at our lives. How could those people connect? How could those people be together? Those people that would be natural born enemies now are together in a family. How could it happen? In the first century, this is certainly true. Jews and Gentiles together wouldn't make sense, but God does that. Why? To demonstrate his goodness. How does the world know that God is good? We love one another and we share life together. By the way, this is why here we have five commitments 
of every attendee. We have five commitments we ask every attendee to be a part of. Why? Because we believe if you're being a part of Crossroads, this is going to display God's goodness by using our time, treasure, and talents for all good, for all his glory. So, so we have these five, and we hope the energy of God's goodness comes from them. These five commitments. We want people to attend regularly, to give their time, to come, to be faithful, to serve faithfully to use the gifts that God has given to them, that these gifts are not only gifts of grace, but channels of grace to others. We want to connect in community. By the way, we're launching our communities this weekend at every campus. Do you, do you realize that we have over 200 opportunities to connect in community and to serve faithfully? Over 200. No, no one in any campus can say, man, I don't have an opportunity. There's not something for me. Grab the catalog. There's over 200 opportunities to connect. We want to give expectantly. We want to use our treasure for the glory of God, and then we want to share Christ boldly. The question becomes, as an attendee of Crossroads, is we ask, how can I leverage all that I am for the sake of the goodness of God? How can I leverage all that I am to display how good God has been to me? My time, my treasure, my talent, all yours, God. I want you to use it to display your glory to the people around me. By the way, isn't it true that what we do with our gifts says everything about what we've, how we view the gift giver? What we do with our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our treasure, what we do with our talents, it all displays of what we view, how we view the gift giver. Can you imagine if you gave your kids a birthday present and they said, no, I don't want it without even opening it? It would be heartbroken. You would be heartbroken. And yet God says, I'm giving you these things. I'm giving you gifts. I'm giving you the gifts of your ability. I'm giving you gifts of time. I'm giving you gifts of treasure. Use it for God's kingdom. Use it for my glory. And then we don't use it. See, how we use the gifts God's given to us is an indication of how we view the gift giver. Do we share life to demonstrate God's goodness? That's what he says here. That people come to the full knowledge of every good thing in us for Christ's sake. Verse 7. For I have derived... Much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Number three, and lastly, in a weary and worn culture, the church serves as a source of spiritual refreshment. I love this description. Paul says, brother, I love what you're doing. I love what your church is doing. Why? Because you're, you're a refreshment for the saints and you're a refreshment for the world to see Christ. Uh, I was reading an article the other day. It was titled, The Land of Huff. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about David Hasselhoff. The Land of Huff. Literally, the article was about how the common language of Americans is, huff. it's a huff. huff. And, and after I read the article, I was in the store, I was in a line, and I was listening to the person in front of me, and literally they huff like five times. <sighs> and the article talked about, this is the description of the way the American culture is today. We live in a land that is tired. We live in a culture that is weary. We live among a people that are overwhelmed. Depression is high, anxiety is true, doubt is strong. H how we live how we engage in this weary and worn culture gives solace, shows the refreshment of Christ 
It shows that Christ is the living water who has satisfied our longing. It gives this impression. By the way, I love this word refreshment here. It's actually a military word. It's the word um, anapauo. And what it means in Greek is literally when, a, when an army would be marching and the general would say, it's time for rest, R&R, at ease, soldiers, take a break, get a drink, sit, take a knee. If you're on a sports team, it's when the coach says take a knee and you know it's break time. That's the word here. It says that we bring a resting point to a world. We show that there's a rest in Christ. And so if we're overwhelmed, if we're distraught, we're missing out on what Christ said to us when he said, come to me, all who are weary and heaven laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, it's easy, my burden is light. I am not burdensome, I am, I am easy, Christ says. You come to me, and there's rest. And as we reflect that rest as the body of Christ, we're showing a world that there is rest. We're showing a world that is weary and torn that there's something that satisfies the deep longing in our souls. That, that depression can give way to cheerfulness. That weariness can give place to vigor. That despondency can give place to hope. That insufficiency gives place to labor. And that doubt gives place to confidence. That through the body of Christ, we're refreshed in who Christ is. Now as we end, across every campus, it's true. This thing is not clean. This picture is not always complete. The idea of the church is not always perfect. And by the way, it wasn't meant to be. When Christ did this, this plan, he knew it was not going to be perfect. We are still sinful, and that's why he said, I'm going to deliver you to be holy and blameless one day. He knows the journey he's taking on. This thing is messy. It's messy. But it's God's plan for the world. It's God's plan to be proclaimers of that gospel truth as we love as we share life and demonstrate his goodness, and as we show a refreshment that only comes from Christ himself to a world that is weary and torn. You know, there are many people today that say, you know what, I don't need the church, I, I don't need it. No, this is the beauty of the church, is we're messy, but there's a picture we're painting of Christ that may be incomplete, but will one day be finished. As we end, I wanna share with you this, this quick illustration of this. I had a friend of mine years ago who opened a restaurant. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you had a close friend that you fully trusted and he was opening or she was opening a restaurant. You, you go in and it's opening night. It's grand opening. They're having dinner and, and, and you decide to go. You get in line and you go to see this grand opening of a new restaurant. You get inside there. The waitress comes over and says, hey, can I take your drink orders? And so you give them the drink orders and Three minutes passes, and five minutes passes, and 10 minutes pass, and eventually 15 minutes pass, and the waitress comes back and goes, oh, oh listen, I'm sorry, I forgot your drink orders. What were they again? She goes back, five minutes pass, 10 minutes pass, 15 minutes pass, and, and then she finally brings the drink orders. And then she says, all right, let me take your meal order. What would you like to eat? And she takes the order. You're waiting there, you're drinking drinks, and, and, and then all of a sudden the, the meal comes, but it's not 10 minutes or 15 minutes, it's 30 minutes late, and you take your first bite, you cut it, you take your first bite, and it's cold. You leave that night, and what do you do? You go on to Yelp, and you give a five-star rating, and you share it on Facebook and said, friends, come visit my friend's restaurant, gather, come to this restaurant, why? It's your friend. And you know the potential of your friend. You know your friend is going to make this restaurant a, an exquisite cuisine. That he's going to fix the problem. It's grand opening weekend. You give a little grace, and so you give a five-star rating, and you say, friends, everybody come to this restaurant. Now imagine for a moment, this was not somebody you knew. 
You go into the restaurant, you, you didn't know the owner. The waitress took 30 minutes to get you drinks, took another 30 minutes to get you the meal and it was cold. You walk out of there and you clip on Yelp and you go one star and lay out all your aggression against the restaurant. That's the point. If we trust Christ, if we believe he is going to make the church blameless and holy one day, that all of us, we are Christians, will one, be, one day be made perfect in Christ in eternity, then can I trust this plan that while the church is messy, while it's not always together, while the picture's not always painted, it is God's plan. And so I am called to love like he loved. I, I am called to demonstrate his goodness as we share life together. And I am called to be a picture of refreshment that only Christ can bring to us so that others can be refreshed at the spring of living water, Jesus Christ. That's the church. And my hope and prayer for us as a church, Lexington, Shelby, our hope is to be a church that loves more than we're loved, to give more than we've been given, to serve more than we actually have been served, to proclaim the gospel truth to a world that desperately needs to see it, not only in word, but in action. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're, we're going to pray, and then we're going to end with this song, Simple Pursuits. Simple Pursuits, getting back to the basics to say, God, this is what we want to reflect, your love, and a world that desperately needs to see your love. In a culture that no, doesn't know your goodness, maybe we, we share your goodness. And, and may we be a place of refreshment. We come in burdened and heavy laden, but we lay it at the cross. We lay it at the resurrection. We say, God, you're doing a work in me. In spite of this, you're doing a work. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for your word. God, may we be that church. May we be that church, the church that loves more than we've been loved. May, may we serve more than we've even been served. May it be that we're motivated by the gospel reality that you've broken down the wall that separates us. You've drawn us into a right relationship. You now have commissioned us to go and think strategically about outsiders, to, to, to not only think strategically, but act urgently because the time is passing. And may we do it because we as a body love each other. May we do it because we share life together in community. A life that demonstrates your goodness, not our goodness, but your goodness. May it be, oh God, that we're a place of refreshment. We're a church refreshed by you and now for you in a world that is weary and torn. May your gospel penetrate hearts. God, if there's anybody here and they have that wall of separation, there's enmity between them and God, they're an enemy of you right now. God, I pray that you take the scales off their eyes, you'll open their hearts to you, and you'll bring them into a right relationship with yourself. You've already broken down the wall at your cross, and now it's, it's rescuing them from the culture, and now sending them back to the culture to make an impact. God, I pray for our church that we would be a place to reflect you all the more as the culture and church continues to widen in the gap, may we fill it, not by running, not by surrendering, not by becoming, but by living in the culture, but for you, Christ. May our motivation be different. All for your name, Jesus Christ, the head of the body. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing this song together.